Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dr. Kuntz, I, I this last weekend broke a fast that I had begun well before Lent. Um, I'd been fasting from Twitter entirely and exclusively. And when I left, you know, Elon was still in embroiled in sort of the takeover, you know, people complaining that he wasn't doing good enough. He was going to step down or something. And right. then, uh, so anyway, I check out, uh, in the meantime, I had run into chat GPT a month and a half, two months prior. Cause I follow, you know, entrepreneurial newsletters or I did. Uh, and, and so I had plugged into that a little bit, almost like three days after it came out. But now I came back to Twitter this past weekend, uh, simply, uh, to follow the banking industry news as best as I could. You know, as much as I'd like to think that CNN and Fox are telling me straight truth right on time, I kind of have learned not to think that way and to, to seek information where I can find it, which is in, in the cesspool of Twitter. So I ended up spending a lot more time on Twitter than, than I had uh, for several months. And it struck me twofold. Uh, there's been a lot of changes, user interface changes, which are, are good and yet shockingly too good at pulling me back in further, uh, you know, faster. Um, and this is like kudos to Elon. He figured out how to make it better. Um, but at the same time, it's a little disturbing. And then there's a lot of chat GPT going on and almost an overlap, which would make one wonder if the companies that are owned by this guy have any kind of more larger or interesting or even might one say diabolical plan. Now, th that's one conspiracy theory just to get us to the idea <laughs> that there is uh, that there's a banking crisis happening, not happening. Oh, we're fine. Don't worry. It's Trump's fault. Um, but, you know, we'll fix it. Uh, Joe says this week following the I mean, as we as we record this, we are a week after uh, tomorrow would be the week from the announced collapse of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Right. And and the weekend in which the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Treasury and other interested banking parties uh, argued, gave mixed messages about the solution that they were going to come up with in this. Um, but in the end, which resulted in the development of the bank term funding program based upon FDR's exchange stabilization fund. How fun is that? Which ultimately is a new organization to allow the U.S. government to buy its own junk debt back from banks by loaning the banks a one-year loan at an equivalent level dollar to dollar rather than at the loss they would be sustaining through the current economic realities or liquidity liquidity crisis. Um, you can imagine, uh, those of you who are following along playing at home, that that one-year loan is not a one-year loan. It's, it's 
a one-year loan until next year. Um, and, and the debt cycle, they pray, they pray, will continue. Is that what is happening? Or is the entire thing a matter of uh, an ISO launch and transition to, what, central bank digital currency? Uh, is it going to be Ripple? What does Ripple have to do with any of this? And that's not even my question, but I know you're going to riff on all of it. But, but here's my question then. Which one is it? Is this incompetence? We actually have people that are so barbaric and so foolish that they just don't even know what they're doing as they try to feed their mouths uh, and they just are trampling things. Is this is this greed? Is this really a play for uh, the financial controls of the world between parties who are vying for position? Um, is this malice, whether that be, you know, aliens, uh, the CCP, uh, cannibal, pedophile, demonic worshippers at the highest levels? Uh, or is this just an honest imperial college try at the CBDC and it's all going according to plan? Uh, with some drums, please, Dr. Koontz, anything you'd like to say about <laughs> any of that? So one way to figure out what is happening is that you want to look at what looks similar to the past, but just slightly different from it, sufficient to raise your suspicion or pique your interest. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, that's FDIC, is created in the banking crisis that comes out of the collapse of the stock market in the fall of 1929 to guarantee deposits up to a certain level that is for the average everyday depositor. And that's still the case. That's what the FDIC insures. What you'll notice about the Silicon Valley Bank and about some of the pronouncements that have, been, that have come out of the Department of the Treasury, as well as the Federal Reserve in the time since the collapse began and since other things have begun, you know, getting shaky. And, and the way that they're getting shaky very noticeably, if you're tracking any of this, is that trading in public corporations, generally banks right now, is being selectively suspended. So, you know, PacWest Bank has been suspended a couple of times. First Republic has been suspended a couple of times in the past couple of days as we record. So what has also happened is that deposits in Silicon Valley Bank have been insured apparently entirely, not just up to the FDIC limit. So what you can see is that something more is at stake than just the, I don't know, let's say the just the, the pure interests of everyday people who probably don't have more than $250,000 deposited anywhere on this earth at one time. So... If you look into Silicon Valley Bank, there there's kind of a standard story that I've seen, and then there's a story that is that is not so standard that I find relatively few people are aware of. The standard story that I've seen is about how incompetence was widespread at Silicon Valley Bank because, like many things in Silicon Valley, it was focused on diversity on soft power, you might say, in ways that cause them to be incompetent. So, you know, I mean, and none of that is strictly speaking untrue. So the the head of, I, I want to say it was just investment for Europe, Asia, and Africa, while that was busy, like not functioning well in a financial sense, 
was hosting and promoting Lesbian Visibility Day at Silicon Valley Bank. So what you're dealing with is essentially an incapacity to focus on the things that would actually keep the institution afloat because of a a focus on you know social go- goals we you could just say woke capital right the problem there is that i i've never quite believed the narrative that if you get if you if you go woke if you get woke you go broke because it's just empirically not true for so many corporations so while i find lesbian visibility day laughable i don't find that actually to be the major story here the major story is that many, many, many California politicians are heavily invested themselves. Think of Nancy Pelosi doing some very special trading in February of 2020, very invested themselves in Silicon Valley Bank. And that's where I think that we we're kind of missing the we're missing the main story here, which is really a story about not so not so much the incompetence of our elites as the fragility of their treasure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, because they're not, they're not invested in, and there are plenty of historical equivalents to this, but just to keep it, let's say in Northern California, something that people would go broke over a lot and was protected in a very crony capitalist way in the 19th century, as Silicon Valley Bank and similar institutions are being protected, even very unfairly to the retail trader by saying, nope, sorry, you you can't, um, you just can't trade in that stock right now. Sorry, it's just not available. Okay, even though it's a publicly traded corporation. The thing that was a lot like that was railroads. And so a lot of the people that built very beautiful homes, especially on Knob Hill in San Francisco, would have made their fortune somehow involving railroads or mining or both in various ways. But at least an equal, if not a greater number of people went broke when railroads would fail. They were sort of the speculative technological wealth and the prospect of building them was the speculative technological wealth of a previous era. I don't really see anything different, although it's just a lot less concrete what precise kinds of wealth you're going to get out of a you know, so-called climate tech startup. So you'll notice, for example, that the people that are honestly concerned about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank are people who are heavily invested not only in startup culture as a sort of self-evident good, but also in particularly things that that bank was not uniquely, but really disproportionately underwriting, such as technology startups to mitigate the effects of climate change. So the reason that it's getting protected or that anything is getting protected is because the people governing you or purporting to govern you are themselves invested in these things. The reason that it does concretely matter and you can't just like look on and laugh you know, is 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 both because you can see that the system is rigged in favor of high rollers, right? So let's just, you know, bring back a nice old metaphor that was carefully chosen from the history of the mob and the history of the Wild West, which was the casino. You know, somehow there was always one of those in every mining town. 
the casino is not only rigged in favor of the high rollers. So if you walk in off the street and you're playing for 75 bucks that you put in the slots, you're going to lose. Okay. The casino is there for the owners and maybe to benefit some of the high rollers for some amount of time. But the casino is also there because it has its own interests. The owners of the casino have their own interests. And since one of their interests is obviously from an investment perspective in what we've talked about, ESG, right? Those those sorts of goals that are soft, pretty much always leftist, involving environment, social goals, goals for black representation on boards, female representation, and so on. Even though there are no genders, we do need women on the board, whatever that is, right? Their interest in that, including mitigation of climate change, are being adversely affected by the failure of financial institutions that underwrite those goals. So those are going to get propped up. So in the same way that in, you know, 1932, 1933, the Democratic Party did rely very heavily on the votes, particularly of poor whites. So in a country that in 1932, 33 is going to be whiter than it is today, more economically egalitarian than it is today. The Democratic Party needs the votes of Southern whites. So you get a Tennessee Valley Authority. It needs the votes of small town businessmen. So you're going to get an FDIC. Okay. Today, it doesn't need those things and it doesn't need those people. But it does need the support, um, as does the Republican Party, of corporations, large investors, private equity that is heavily invested in things for a mixture, a mixture of financial and ideological reasons. So that's why you're seeing even beyond legally required limits, deposit insurance promised at least, or market interventions carried out so that the interests of those who either govern or who support those in government can be protected. So it's not really what's happening, I don't think is at all a new phenomenon. The small man, if he has no political power, is always going to be at at best neglected and at worst actually harmed because he simply doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter to them that some retail trader who's trying to, you know, up the small amount of his fixed income or something on E-Trade is suffering as a result of what's going on right now. Yes, but 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 if the CCP were in fact in control of everything yeah. that is happening right now, what would they do differently? I mean, that's, C- half a, that's tongue in cheek. That's tongue in cheek. Yeah. But well, but- no, I think I think you're right. I, I think that the difference between a communist party in any given state and the nature of our regime is that our regime is is both a little more openly it's it's both more open in its squabbles and much more covert in its agreement so people feel like they're being edgy when they talk about the uniparty in american politics because apparently democrats and republicans don't agree on lots of things mm. right so it feels sort of you know intelligent or edgy or something to notice that they generally end up doing the same things you know what seems very obviously insider trading just before lockdowns happened by politicians of both parties. 
the Communist Party of China would simply, I think, be a great deal more open about its own unitary control over the country's economic life. And it would be a lot quieter about its squabbles based on our political history and and just our the way that our political functioning has gone. We are just the opposite. Yeah, we have some kind of uniparty that has obvious interests visible in market interventions, particularly. But we also do get to hear when, you know, AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene disagree with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm with that. I, I guess my thinking is uh, just playing the conspiracy hack because it's fun. Like, no, the CCP is orchestrating this not so much from a top-down point of view, but as uh, uh, intellectual contagion, uh, psychological warfare, undermining of the society that it perceives as its great enemy for the next century and has spent, I don't know, 20 years getting into our entertainment industry, whatever, in order to, to do this. The point isn't really even that at all, though. The, the point is... Um, <laughs> All of these stories that we we come to that we try to use to explain the big, big narrative are, I think, attempts to avoid the fear of what it means for the absolute present for us, uh, for the average man. And particularly in the face of events that are uh, impossible to imagine. So let's just say we're going to change to a different world currency and they're going to force this on us um, and that we're going to have it happen to our bank accounts, whether we like it or not. And the result will be the loss of buying power to pretty much everyone who's not Gavin Newsom, Oprah Winfrey or Prince Harry. Right. Because, of course, you're you're specially insured, as we learned this last weekend. So, you know, how how do I ask? this common man who can do nothing about it uh, prepare for this, given the fact that I'm already fervent in prayer to Jesus Christ, that I'm going to trust in him for my daily bread. uh, But now I I have my hands in front of me. I've got so much money in the bank here and there. I've had some stocks. I'm modestly diversified, but like uh, really, um, what what, what should I expect next? How do I go to my elders meeting and talk about this? Yeah, and we have been talking about this here partly because you you only need so many East Palestines to happen in order for you to realize they they don't fundamentally care about you. So, once you know that they may they might actively hate you. It's certain they fundamentally don't care about you. Once you realize that you really just need to start setting store by other things than the the fortunes and misfortunes of your investments or whatever it is that the government turns them into. Because one thing that you can rely upon is that emergencies will produce the desire for seizures of power, financial power, political power, military power, by governments that are under some kind of threat or crisis. It happens in the American Civil War on both sides, and it probably actually it probably actually happens more in the South than in the North. Contrary to the South's own ideology about things like states' rights, they seize all kinds of things, including human beings. I'm not even I'm not talking about slavery euphemistically. I'm talking about ignoring habeas corpus, just like in the North. Those things are going to happen when governments come under pressure. Or if you want to say it more broadly or more you know, loosely when regimes, including both the state in its formal 
capacities, as well as the money that backs that state, as well as the assets and their use underlying the money that backs the state. When that comes under pressure, it's going to react by trying to get greater security for itself. So this is where no man is an island. And if you are living in a way, and I think some of the vision that is promoted, you know, maybe maliciously, but I think most often unwittingly of people homesteading is very naive in the sense that 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 acts like you're going to be left alone, that if you pursue a certain kind of a life, you're going to be left alone. And the fact is that homesteading throughout our history has always been some kind of collective endeavor. So even if you're totally alone on your your farm and your sod house in Kansas in 1890, you're there because the government wants you to be there and because they're keeping the Indians from coming and killing you. In an earlier time, in a more densely settled place, it's because your community is protecting each other. Okay. So the idea that if you have a certain kind of life, you're going to be left alone, I, I think is always unwise. A congregation needs to begin by caring for the physical well welfare of its own. I mean, if you can accept this, that's the absolute most basic reason why the pastor goes to the hospital when somebody's there or why you make meals for someone when they had a surgery or had a baby or whatever, right? That is going to have to begin extending to larger facets of our lives. Like, do we have somewhere to live? Do we have a job? These are all things about which the congregation needs to be concerned because barely and, and perhaps no one else is. If that's true, then you really can't look at the future as like, well, what's going to happen and what should I get outraged by? And don't be surprised by any further grasp at power, especially as a regime feels that it is shaky. And it and it's shaky partly because if I can just compare this real quick, our economy is so vastly more financialized than it was when we had the recession that everyone remembers, which is the Great Depression. Okay. So when we had bank failures and you know, some giant percentage of people are out of work and then the government creates make work programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps and lots of stuff like that, realize that the people who still had work and the investments that people were making were still much more often based on, let's say, hard assets <laughs> or in the, in the, you know, the old, let's say, you know, nomenclature of English law the assets based on real estate, right? So here's this steel mill, here's this mine, you know? Now it's like, what, what is the wealth of Silicon Valley Bank? What is, what is being insured? What are people invested in that the government is so concerned about? A climate tech startup by black and brown entrepreneurs over here. Over here, we're gonna build a hydrogen, you know, semi. These are all just extreme, even when they concern real things, like things you can touch, things you can drive, something that moves goods from one place to another. It's all pretty wildly speculative. 
on just on a sheerly technological level. And sometimes it's not particularly, it's like an app. Okay. Living on top of how many layers of hard assets all the way down. If you think to like lithium mining and securing lithium reserves so we can keep making all these batteries. So when you think about it that way, that makes it just that much more precarious, right? If someone owns a coal mine and there's a recession, he's going to have to put some people out of work. If someone owns commercial real estate in 2020, <laughs> he might be out of work too, <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. not just everyone who works for him. So the more speculative or, or we've used the term before financialized, an economy is, an investment portfolio is, a nation is, the harder that a fall will come because there's very little backing up. This is sort of the financial end of the idea that like, if you can grow some of your own food, you're not as dependent on the grocery store. Well, if you can actually make something or like do something concretely useful at all times, then your economy on a larger scale, right? A collective scale or a macro scale is going to be more robust than an economy that is more heavily financialized. So this is why, for example, Australia, if you look at it, has done better in the past two decades than almost any other Western economy, because if it was speculative, it was speculating very heavily on the growth of China's economy, and it was providing raw materials to China's economy. That's been a great bet for multiple decades. Coal used to be a similar bet for almost anyone. These things are not foolproof, but there are ways to be more or less secure. I would say we are highly insecure. Hmm. Yeah. And so that, that kind of leads to an old question from this show uh, yeah. that, that we, we've circled past. But do you believe this is the real play for the central bank digital currency? That is, there is some intention. There is some expectation. Not just they've talked about this as an idea, but they're getting ready to pull the plug. Central bank digital currency, I, I see on a continuum with the multi-century-long growth of government power over assets. So the distinction between greenbacks and basically the way that almost, almost everyone's wealth works now, which is essentially, you know, numbers on a screen somewhere versus a central bank digital currency is that the only thing that's really changing at any one of those stages is that the government is acquiring not only more control over the issuing of currency, which is kind of where people will sometimes go, okay, here's the, here's the difference between a gold standard versus paper currency. They're not, they're not only gaining greater control over time over what currency is issued, they're also gaining greater control over how that currency may be used by whom. So it seems not inevitable, but entirely normal along that, you know, kind of continuum that they would seek greater and greater security over who may use the currency for what purposes. So if you think of, you know, the way that you're currently using U.S. dollars, well, wouldn't it be better for them if they could control that you couldn't use those U.S. dollars to buy firearms, right? And so a currency, whether it is presented as some sort of crypto space innovation originally or however it's presented 
you know, if they can't get away with a pure social credit system, which is its own sort of a currency, if they can't get away with that right now, or if we're not all herded into smart cities to make that possible, it seems entirely natural along the continuum of the way that currency issuing has worked, basically since governments began it on a large scale or on a scale that's supposed to cover an entire economy, that everything would be valued in terms of that government's you know, issued currency, that they would want to control not only, okay, you need to use US dollars for this transaction or you need to use contactless payment for this transaction or whatever, but that it would also have something to do not only with the verification, this is really, this is backed up by the full faith and credit of the United States government, but that you are also backed up <laughs> by right. the full faith and credit of the United States government. And that anything, including a digital currency, that would make that more possible seems obvious to me that they would seek that, right? I mean, that's kind of the point of real ID from a different perspective, right. is that what the regime wants to do increasingly is verify not your trust in them, right? So FDR is going to get on the radio and ask for people's trust and patience as the government handles the recession. We we now call the Great Depression. But that now the problem is more you and the government will now need to verify its trust in you to be a functioning member of, of its regime. So one way to think about CBDC, uh, central bank digital currency, is that it's it's money with an off switch or a kill switch uh, that the the government is able to make use of, or the issuer, I should really say. Yeah, the and, issuer. And, right. and it would seem that again. So my question still is: so is right now the moment where the Western plan for this is getting ready? We see the tremors that they know are coming, uh, and so they may just poke it and go. Um, I think we can expect that there is going to be a play for at least two CBDCs uh, internationally because of the China Russia. Um, uh, oh, now I'm losing the other three. Brazil, uh, that alliance that is dealing with the exit from the SWIFT banking system, all fallout from the Ukraine war. Uh, without yeah. question, they're not going to buy into, uh, you know, USA, Britain's, NATO's uh, CBDC. So they're they're going to be going for their own. And China really does have its own kind of this thing. Um, but the idea again. For the, the WEF crowd, it would seem is that this is a unifying factor that goes beyond nation states and nation barriers. Uh, and so this this move, when and if they push for it, also uh, is is meant to, again, give them the power, as you said very well, Dr. Kunz, to, to exclude those non-citizens because in terms of right. the money, they're right. not trustworthy. Um, now, I think if we can learn anything from um, uh, the temperance movement and and uh, teetalism, uh, abolition, uh, I'm losing the word now. Teetotalism? Uh, no, well, the, what's the Prohibition? Law? Prohibition, there we go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, if I can learn anything from prohibition, it's that you will spark a new economy and the one that is also there vying for being a true decentralized digital currency is Bitcoin, uh, which has seen growth uh, in this last week. Of course, it's a safer haven at the moment uh, than banks you can't trade in. So uh, so that remains there as part of this this transition, um, all being numbers on a screen. And I don't know what a, uh, uh, a hypersonic nuke would do to the network and how the future holds and blah, blah, blah. But it does seem pretty imperative to me uh, that what's going on uh, with Ripple and the former uh, FDIC 
is that right? No, treasury, treasury chairperson, uh, Rios, um, that all of those things in the next couple of weeks, uh, they're not on accident. Uh, they're either incompetence, greed, or malice. I don't know which one, um, but that <laughs> that it, it's worth following these things, if only prayerfully, um, uh, and, and perhaps in preparation for the alien invasion, which is about to ensue. But that's a different question. So let, let's just stick with what do you know about <laughs> Ripple and, uh, and how important is Ripple to even care about right now from your point of view? About Ripple, I know practically nothing. I don't keep up with crypto space like you do like many of the listeners do. So I don't want to, you know, bloviate about something I know nothing about. I am suspicious, not of the crypto space in itself, but of its viability because of the question of kill switches on a sheer electrical level that makes me wonder what their viability is in any case. So, you know, crypto boomed just as sort of an an asset class, but also as a, I don't, I want to say maybe some sort of economic carve out in Miami, starting from about 2020, because Miami combined Florida's political environment with, you know, n- none of the regulatory threats that, you know, say a California state legislature is offering or has offered or has presented. And, but the problem there is that Florida is still in the union and does not have its own currency, even though it's upping its state guard, which is not controlled by the federal government. So there are certain measures of sovereignty involving currency as well as military control that although a certain freedom or borderlessness is characteristic of both our international financial system as well as a lot of crypto. The difference is that the international financial system has the uh, military backing and control over electrical grids that, as far as I know, various you know crypto platforms and also coins do not possess. So that's that's just my, my general skepticism. But about Ripple particularly, I, I don't know enough to comment. Yeah, I think your skepticism is fair. Uh, the the counter argument being, in my limited knowledge, I followed a lot more than I do now. Um, it, it would be that uh, you would have to, to, to stop Bitcoin from being able to be traded, you would have to effectively end the internet or find a way to to hunt down and capture uh, anybody who logged in long enough to make a transfer, um, <laughs> and and you know you get a little matrixy uh, Agent Smithy thing going on there, um, but the it seems that as long as there is internet and electricity available, Bitcoin will be able to be used by pirates, and and that sort of is the idea behind it, uh, except for that these pirates do believe they're freedom fighters. Uh, they have a, a really a theology of libertarianism with some sort of like like spiritual, economic, natural law assumptions. I don't necessarily personally disagree with, but the, there is this almost um, altruistic, philosophical, religious element to the entire thing, um, which is, you know, both both good and evil, I suppose, in certain ways. Um, sure. 
But, uh, you know, without knocking out the Internet and Power Grid, it seems like you're going to be having to trade in a CBDC somehow to keep a job in whatever we call civilized society sometime, you or your grandchildren. And I'm just I'm just kind of saying um, my guess is you're going to trade in something else once in a while with your neighborhood. And, and uh, crypto is not necessarily going to be out of that question. But this is kind of to your point, you know, the best thing to trade with is your own ability to do things. <laughs> yeah, uh, your, your capacity as a human to yeah. be valuable, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. And be, I think if you if you look at historical examples of of cashless or practically cashless societies, which in our you know where we're at in our America, you know, Myth of America series, these societies are essentially entirely cashless, with with very few exceptions, and they're not allowed to mint their own coins. So what you can what you can see is that it is very possible to have a very sustainable human life on a cashless basis. The problem there is and the the reason any of this is intertwined for any of us on any level is because of a presumption of a certain level of technological achievement necessary for what any of us conceives of as modern life. Because of that we cannot opt into full cashlessness. If you want to downshift into partial cashlessness, such that you know cash doesn't pass between, if it doesn't need to, this person and this person and this person, because they're family or they're all in the same congregation and they can help each other in these ways, then you're just a little bit more secure than you were before, right? It's it's not impossible to just exit into you know sort of a you know, brave new world off the reservation existence it's just not a bargain hardly any of us is willing to make and i don't just like i don't think we should just abandon all cities immediately like i don't want to throw up my hands and be like well let's go do this and i mean and if you think i'm saying like oh well we could just become amish no i'm not saying that they also rely on the same technology they just don't use it the same way we're all reliant on the electrical grid and fossil fuels and lots of things, we can't all just like stop tomorrow. So if we're going to do this in a sensible way, if there are realms of our life where we can downshift, let me just give you a concrete, simple example. It would be a lot better if we did more things for each other rather than hiring someone to come in and rip us off and do the same thing while taking more time. Hmm. What if you could just bring somebody in to help you, whatever, cut down that tree, fix that plumbing, whatever that you trusted, and then you can serve him dinner and you can just be friends, <laughs> right? Rather than calling somebody in who's going to take twice as long as your friend does and is going to charge you 700 bucks more. The reason that we live in certain ways is because we've relied on cash and legality as a proxy for trust. There's a book that we will be talking about later on in the Myth of America series, because I think it's one of the keys to understanding America. It's called The Origins of English Individualism. It's obviously about England, but that means that ultimately it's about America too. But that these proxies for trust are fine if you can sort of rely on people if you can't rely on people, <laughs> then you shouldn't have proxies for trust. That's just opening yourself up for tragedy. 
So it's, it's, it's one thing to say, well, what's going to happen if everything collapses? That doesn't actually seem to be the way things are going, like imminent, entire, total, immediate collapse. But if I can choose parts of my life where I can make myself a little bit more secure by being of greater value as a, as a person or finding a person who is of greater value, who will be helpful, regardless of whether I can pay him, you know, 200 million you know, World Economic Forum simoleons tomorrow or not, then my life is just a little bit more secure. My family is a little bit more, you know, better taken care of than if I just continue getting outraged that both the, the worth of my cash and the degree to which I should trust other people is just rapidly declining. Sure. I don't have control over that process in any kind of complete way. But there are ways in which I can begin to or or continue or further let's say, insulate myself. Now, if I want to go all the way and say, I'm going what I think is Amish or what I'm describing as a cashless society, I, I mean, I would I would say probably roughly my, my three times great-grandparents would have lived in this society, okay? It, in the scale of human history, that wasn't that long ago. If I want to do that, that's great, but I don't really think that's realistic for most of us. So, I could maybe downshift into other ways of existing that don't rely so much on both the availability of currency and also trust in complete strangers. So another direction, another question, uh, an entirely fictional account, neither reality nor names mentioned have any connection to uh, real things. This is, uh, this is all made up. Okay. So, but sometime, okay, cool. shortly, sometime shortly after America won World War II, uh, having unwittingly stopped the aliens who had found us 15 years prior and decided to use the German race to take over the population as a slave population, the aliens b learned that direct assault wasn't going to work because America was just too good and virtuous for that. And so instead, they began a program, a contaminant program, to intellectually dissolve and destroy uh, the present race of greatness on America, American soil, the freedom-loving, obvious, you know, whoever loves America, they're obviously part of what I'm talking about and and they've just been biding their time all this while and right now they've got us worked up into a frenzy we're all, we're all about ready to destroy ourselves in the name of peace and justice and uh, sometime soon probably they're just going to reveal themselves and uh, and show that they are the answer to all of our problems and, and prayers and and while I'm just telling this story yeah. for fun in part it's because in my little Twitter dive this past weekend I can't believe how many alien shots I was shown Many, many, many. Three, five, seven, I don't know. But like you're scrolling and it's like, okay, this is like the third fuzzy shot of something flying somewhere and it can't be possible. Uh, not to mention they're they're apparently doing jet stream something, something over somewhere. And is it poison? Is it killing people? Is it aliens? Nobody knows. doesn't matter. I know you like yeah. to talk about aliens and that's my intro for you to yeah, go wherever you I want. Do. <laughs> I, do, I do like to talk about aliens because I like to talk about the growth of superstition. And this distinction between... I'm sort of sick of people bashing the word religion. It it has always felt kind of juvenile to me. And at this point, it's sort of actively destructive. A long time ago, seemingly in the history of the internet, you responded to this guy. Was it Jefferson Bethke? Was that his name? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was doing the kind of the standard evangelical Jesus versus religion thing. Mm-hmm. Religion is what 
mature people practice in relationship to God. Religion is fine. Superstition is not. And superstition always grows where religion recedes. You know, the the myths come in when Christ leaves the stage. So the growth of superstition is now, I, I would say, rank in the sense that you could talk to almost anybody off the street about cryptids, which would have been, and especially in the older sense of the word, cranky, that is offbeat, weird thing to even talk to somebody else about maybe 30 years ago. And now it's entirely normal, sort of in a half-joking way. But you could also talk about ghosts and other paranormal phenomena and ESP and astrology. And all of that is growing and growing and growing and growing alongside and certainly faster than the growth of the Christian religion in the West. So as those things grow, I would not be surprised to see their utilization by government agencies, private corporations, and so on. We know that they've, they, they have always operated that way, you know. The, the spread of rumor and the idea that rumor flies as opposed to other things that have to walk slowly on the earth is an extremely powerful social control. So if rumor can be weaponized, and this is the nature, I mean, this is the nature, let's be honest, for almost everyone of all scientific and medical discourse. So a lot of you are a lot smarter about virology and immunology and lots of other things than you were three years ago. Okay. Most people probably aren't because they're probably not really built to function on the level of analyzing everything that they're seeing and hearing or having the leisure to analyze too, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sure. Okay. So for them, if someone says something authoritatively, that's honestly all that matters. And I'm not saying that in any kind of cynical way. I'm saying this would seem to be the way most human beings are built in practically any society throughout history, okay? So if someone says something and has a scientific aura about him or is wearing a military uniform or is wearing a lab coat, then it's true. And people understand that. People in control understand that. So if aliens keep coming up, you know, and I, I know this is one of the things, interestingly, about which listeners most often talk to me. So, I mean, like in person, when when I meet them, they relatively rarely have hot takes about the starving time at Jamestown. And they relatively frequently have hot takes about <laughs> aliens. <laughs> And that's understandable, too, because it's kind of more intriguing than the starving time, even though generally you can learn more from what did happen than than what never happened. That is, I think, also understood is that this is just more intriguing to people than other things. And I don't think it's be it it's being used, especially in our media or as a matter of selective disclosure by government agencies to say utterly cynically hey, look at this so that you don't look at this other thing. I think they understand that this is not a distraction. It's actually more powerful than any amount of discussion of the nature of currency, the history of currency, 
the circulation of currency could ever be to anybody. So if you find a lever that is, you know, much more useful than some other lever, then that's the one you're going to use. And, you know, aliens <laughs> are a much better lever for a population. Invasion is a much better lever for a population. Chinese spy balloons are a much better lever for a population than trying to get people to understand something that in the case of finance, like science, is going to be gobbledygook to them without question. Yeah. Yeah, it's gobbledygook when you know what it is. Because uh, it's it, alchemy. Is, you, you, <laughs> yeah, went yeah, right. this, you went no, over all right. of this yeah, episodes that's right. ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and no, I'd love to ask about Ray Dalio here a little bit and, and his take on things and whether you rely on that. But we're going to move on to some listener questions here for our last uh, yeah, sure. 20, uh, 10, 12 minutes or so. Um, Alyssa, she says, I, I homeschool. I want to teach my children Latin. I never learned Latin except for learning enough to understand what I was singing in a college choir. What program would you recommend I use to teach and learn Latin? And while that's an open question to us both, I'm, I'm going to let you answer that one. Yeah. And I have been, I corresponded with Alyssa about this, but I'll give everybody this answer is that usually the thing that most people use to learn Latin on their own is Wheelox. I don't actually recommend that unless you're a pretty self-disciplined person, especially if you're learning with or for your children. Memoria Press's Latin program is vastly superior for sheer repetition and thoroughness. And learning a language, which I would recommend everyone learns at least one other language, I mean, learns it like you can pick up and read things without using a dictionary, learns it, which honestly has never been easier than it is today, because you can listen to, watch, read anything at any time in that language, even ancient Latin. Okay. I would recommend Memoria because it inculcates something that you need to learn the language, which is just constant sheer exposure. You you need that. And what that's going to do over time is make it seem more like a piece of reality than a chore. And what that's going to do to your brain is really kind of hard to explain if you've never done it before, but it simply changes your capacity to grasp what is occurring around you, what you read, what you hear, what you see. And the only thing that I can really compare it to is, is if you're, you're used to living in a house that's like 400 square feet and you move into a house that is 4,000 square feet, you really have no concept of what your life is going to be like with all that space. And you can't even right now imagine what you're going to put there. But for me, the learning of languages is always like, I think that I'm living mentally in a sort of lush tropical environment. And then I begin to learn something new and I find out that I was living in practically a desert. So Memoria Press is my recommendation for that kind of thorough repetition and clarity that you're going to need. And Latin in the whole scheme of things is not that hard to learn because it's unlike English, <laughs> it follows its own rules and has a clear way to be pronounced. 
I am going to throw in a little bit of an answer to that. I'm going to start by saying Proverbs 1 verse 2 says to know wisdom and discipline, to understand words of understanding. And that's all to say what Dr. Kuntz just said was absolutely awesome and true. Um, let me suggest to you and the entire world that uh, at this time in history, uh, with all the options before you, as he said, with regards to you can learn a language. Uh, as a Christian in Western civilization, might you not consider Greek? Now, let me just make my case. Latin's beautiful. It's so You're going to make me speak against Greek, I don't want to. Enough. Latin's yeah. beautiful. Latin's beautiful. It's so good. It's an entry pad to the history of all sorts of stuff. But I just can't imagine what an army of uh, Lutheran Christians who can read the New Testament in Greek would do with this world. And to give that to your children as a, uh, as a, as a gift, as their entry point, you can use the New Testament as your reading book together. There's just a lot of value there. But we'll let Dr. Kuhn speak against the Bible um, and, uh, and, <laughs> and make his case for that. <laughs> no, I mean, Greek, Greek, is, Greek is fine. I mean, if you revived Homeric Greek, I would... I would, I would, that would be a hard support. I'd probably even run a GoFundMe for that. So, oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I'd yeah. love to have us all learn Hebrew, of course, but I've, I have learned by teaching a little locally that it's a definitely an acquired taste. But you talk about like opening the potential insights into the way the world operates that your former language just didn't even like have ways for thinking about. Right. Um, yep. oh, golly, you know, what a, what a, yep. what a mind unleashing thing Hebrew is. So uh, another question here about a book. Again, uh, Dr. Kuntz says, uh, Matt, I enjoy your podcast very much. He mentions me too, uh, both of you. Uh, thank you for all that you do. I have a book recommendation uh, to make, which comes after listening to many of your episodes, and it's called Human Scale by Kirkpatrick Sale, written in 1980. And I'm just curious, Dr. Kuntz, for my own part, uh, have you read this book? Do you have any commentary on this book uh, that you could share? No, I have read Kirkpatrick Sale's Advocacy for the Secession of Vermont, which he's been heavily involved in. And I think he's deriving that book, from what I understand of it, from E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, which is a certain particularly economic program about the desire for human scale. And maybe Sale expanded that to other realms of life. Schumacher was trying to say something philosophical, but but was speaking particularly in terms of economics, is that there's a scale at which life is meant to be lived. And that is the scale that we should actually design things to function. And, and with that contention, I, I, I have absolutely no problem. I think that part of the reason that finance or science or, or you know, certain things are gobbledygook to almost everybody or like Pastor Fitz said, especially when you understand finance to any degree, you're like, yeah, this is actually gobbledygook. <laughs> is because we're not actually designed to function at the level of mass incessant complexity at which we are forced to function. Most right, of us. Right. All of the time. Yeah. I, I know that full well, but I love it so much I'm writing it down. So uh for complexity. We have another question that is going to be 
uh, designed for complexity because it's about the state <laughs> of Jefferson. So uh, buckle in and hold on. Uh, Dr. Kunz and Red Fisk, I'm a new listener to your podcast and have been downloading episodes as fast as my outdated MP3 player will allow. I love this already. This is great. Nice. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been married to my loving patient wife for 16 years, and we have two daughters, 13 and 12. They know more about history, farming, and bushcraft than boys, and I intend for it to stay that way until they get closer to marriage. I work as a park ranger. I've never owned or used a smartphone or used social media. I know more about guns, chainsaws, hunting, and livestock. We buy things with literal paper cash as often as possible. We don't carry debt. I have never bought a house, but bought land in Montana a couple years ago. We are saving to build on it. I come mainly from wildly independent and stubborn Scotch-Irish stock, Western PA, for my father's people and Western VA and Eastern Kentucky for my mother's. There was plenty of German, English, and Irish sprinkled in, but not dominant. My father's side sojourned in Iowa, then continued on to California, and my mother's in Nebraska before continuing to California in the early 1900s. My father lived for a time in Arkansas and South Missouri. When the politics of liberals from the Northeast and Upper Midwest prevailed in California, we all, family, uh, moved further into the hills and mountains of California. After the state of Jefferson movement failed, we all moved to Idaho. I was raised on stories of Boone and Henderson and the Wilderness Road of the Watauga Republic, State of Franklin, Kings Mountain, and the CSA. I now have both parents, two brothers, one sister, three nieces, six nephews, plus variants, aunts, uncles, and cousins living in Idaho. We are all now trying to sink our roots into the American readout. My father's people were Lutheran, Reformed, and my mother's were Anglican, Presbyterian. They both became non-denominational. In fact, my father was baptized Lutheran but rebelled against it. Myself and all my siblings became Reformed, and everyone in my family is now in URCNA in southern Idaho. I'm in an English district, LCMS Church, in North Idaho. All this to be said, I am having trouble integrating into our new congregation and relatively new communion. Are you listening, LCMS? Are you listening? The cultural norms, patterns of manners, and interaction are very different. While I outgrew the Reformed communion with regard to the sacraments long ago, I am struggling to get a sense of how Lutherans deal with overbearing magistrates. I have read the Magdeburg Confession. It is very difficult being eight hours away from my family, and I am trying very hard to make the church our adopted family. For many years, we had Sunday suppers together every week after church and always spent holidays together. Now I see them once or twice a year. In many ways, the two of you and Reverend Willie Grills over at Word Fitly serve as surrogate brothers, even beyond brothers in the faith. Thank you for helping me navigate and integrate into confessional Lutheranism. I was hoping to attend the conference at Luther Classical College in Casper, Wyoming in June, but won't be able to make the trip. If either of you are ever in North Idaho, please reach out. I would love to have you over to eat, buy you a beer or coffee, and show you around, or would be glad to take you fishing or hiking. May our Lord richly bless you both. Uh, no direct question there, Dr. Kuntz, but uh, my questions and, and uh, curiosity are raised both by uh, the movements that he's come from, which are just what a fascinating train uh, of desire for independence. Uh, and then right. uh, the, the cultural difficulty we Lutherans are going to have uh, assimilating uh, those yeah. who are hungry for us. They're looking for us. They're going to find us. How, how do we assimilate? Uh, that's, that's kind of the issue. Yeah, the cultural movements are the strain that I think we've we've mentioned before in American history that 
very often gets neglected is certainly neglected, we said, by David Hackett Fisher and Albion Seed, which is basically the indentured servants of the Virginia planters. That strain, which is now usually called Scotch-Irish and people of that culture, of that descent, will most often report themselves on the census as American in their ethnicity. That group is absolutely foundational to America's history, particularly on the ground. So you will always find them represented on a frontier. You always find them disproportionately represented in the combat arms of our various services at any given time, whether you're talking about the Texas War of Independence or Afghanistan. And they will, in any state, comprise generally your most reflexively conservative I don't necessarily mean religious in an organized way, but reflexively conservative people, always, really reliably, okay, in a way that really is not true for any other population, let's say, right? So the idea that if you come from that, which is foundational to being, to America's history, to being American, and then you are wildly you feel you know wildly alienated inside a given church means that that church either is banking on one of two strategies okay one strategy is you you just swamp all other pre-existent populations okay so this was achieved by roman catholics in certain cities especially in the northeast right so you know where are the where are the working class yankees who dump tea in boston harbor <laughs> i don't think they can afford to live in boston if there are, you know, you know, white people in Boston, they're probably Roman Catholic or they're supposed to be, right? Or they're very, very, very liberal now, right? But that pre-existing population just got swamped in that case, generally by Irish immigration. And so you can do that. You 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 just erase you just erase what came before. Okay. That can be that can be achieved. It just can't really be achieved on a large scale. And it's it's not it's not particularly like the most Christian option, like, well, let's just replace the population. Oh, that'll work. You know, we we don't care about these people. Let's just wait until they die, you know, or just move away. We'll just swamp them out. Okay. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily work. And even where Lutherans have done that, like in the state of Minnesota, which is originally settled by Yankees from New England, they, they didn't effectively take a whole lot of power anyway. So even if you win, are you winning? You know? The other option there is to ask yourself why you are failing to indigenize, culturally speaking. Okay. So we're not talking here about Christian teaching because that's supposed to be universal. So you're supposed to have the same teaching in Uganda and in Southern Idaho and in Iceland. But a lot of the things about church and whether people have a sense of what's going on there or whether it exists or whether they could be a part of it do have to do with communicating in ways that are culturally comprehensible. Okay. So are you speaking the language that I'm speaking? That would be, that would be one. Are you asking me to do things that are unbiblical and against my culture? Or are you accommodating my culture and allowing me to keep doing things that are unbiblical that will have consequences. So you, you can't really get away from this relationship to a culture. Sympathizing with and, and maybe <laughs> maybe sharing some 
some genetic uh, heritage with the person that wrote in, maybe undoubtedly. I, I would say that the cultural things have to do with ways of being that are not necessarily biblically mandated, but are very foreign. So I'll just give you a concrete example. Something I never heard growing up was a, a, a general statement to a group that something needed to be done. And that general statement, like we need volunteers for, or whatever, you know, just, just kind of vaguely, very passively stated, but with the expectation that people would respond, relies on a sort of internal motivation of group well-being and also guilt that is not present in whatever, Scotch-Irish, I, I would just say Appalachian culture, okay? When people describe the dysfunctions of the Army of Northern Virginia and the ferocious devotion to honor that they had, but also their desire to excel, I find that recognizable. The general statement that volunteers are needed for the, you know, the rummage sale in two Saturdays without anybody specifically asking, I'm like, well, okay, well, I don't care. I mean, I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, but I know that it works because that's how that's how our church culture communicates, right? Or or people are there's an interesting Twitter or, poster it, named Uriah who talks about he's from Minnesota, some kind of a non, but he's from Minnesota. He said, I went on a vacation when I was a kid to Arizona, and I thought Minnesotans were nice, right? We're really nice. He said, but we're not gentlemanly. Like we don't have sort of a sense of like performance or charm because we went into a restaurant in Arizona and the, there was a cowboy holding the door and he heard that it was my sister's birthday. So he reaches into his pocket, never met the guy he's holding the door. He hands her $20 and he says, you have a, you have a wonderful day, miss. You know, he's like, we never would have done that. Right. So there are, they're just cultural differences, but you have to be aware that they're there and then make allowance for other cultures in order to get them into your church. Otherwise, I mean, there's only so many people who, like the listener, are going to, for the sake of all of the teaching, yeah. basically endure being an alien for the rest of their lives. It, being in an alien culture that you just said operates by guilt. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. I think Missouri Synod, it will help us to acknowledge, even if we keep this as our major operating you know, like principle for how we encourage each other to do anything, just we are all guilting everybody. That that is our, our language. And as a people who are built upon the fundamental justification of mankind in Jesus Christ's righteousness, it's it's kind of sad. It really is. Like I, I don't know what the answer is. I think Dr. Coons could probably diagnose better what the answer is. But uh, that our internal group well-being instinct is built and managed through language that more or less expects you to feel a twinge of guilt when we say open-ended things and then act. Uh, not only is that just not good for the Christian, um, but I would suggest to you it's not working either. Um, no, 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 yeah. no. Obviously, yeah, yeah I, I would rather deal with a group of individualists who need to acquire some discipline then deal with a group of people who are very well conditioned towards group well-being, but have no personal initiative. Yeah. One culture is much easier to accomplish anything with than the other. And the other, under conditions of adversity, will fail more rapidly than otherwise because 
under conditions of adversity, initiative is required. It's not optional. You you have to have some capacity to both see the good and to seek it and seize it even before someone tells you you should do that or guilts you into doing that. And if you if you crush initiative, you're what you're really crushing is your own future. And this has nothing to do with the answers in our small catechism or with uh, what Dr. Pieper would point out as your primary Bible verses to deal with this or that particular theological locus. Um, it, this has everything to do with when we talk to each other and we're not saying law, gospel, justification, the rest of the jargon that we have managed to pick up. How? Yeah. I, I don't know how. Uh, we've picked it up and it's it's baked into the system. Uh, it's something that we want to... What we need volunteers to stop talking this way. There we go. How's that? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I I think that the reason we have trouble even bringing it up is because it is not purely a matter of doctrine. You could trace it to we have debates about the nature of sanctification, whatever, whatever. The problem is the problem manifests itself even where the people are completely theologically unaware and. Because it's a problem of life, how do we live with each other? How do we talk about things? How do we handle things? These are these are matters that that cannot be dogmatically defined. I mean, I can't I can't lay down a rule for you about how to behave more like Barnabas and less like the Jerusalem church so that you are furthering the gospel of Christ rather than slowing things down and demanding meetings and just being a pain in the butt. I can't lay something down for you. I could say, why don't you try being a little bit more encouraging and a little calmer and you know, not be so like angry that someone is accomplishing something over which you don't have full control, you know, a la Acts 15. But I can't I can't do that for you because it has to do with your life in Christ. It doesn't have to do with you agree with me on the sacraments or the doctrine of election. And so these these matters of life, which if if you want a category for these things, were usually discussed and 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 by their own telling, not fully fleshed out by our forefathers, but they were discussed as the difference between behaving as a state church versus behaving as a free church. And the difference here is that, as we're gonna see as we go on in the series, things like the Southern Baptist Convention, things like what we call non-denominational many things that are matters of widespread ancestral American religion are native to or very accustomed to functioning in a non-ethnically specific free church situation. A religion relatively recently brought in from Europe or very closely tied to an immigrant ethnicity or something is going to have a lot of trouble understanding the degree of initiative and the kind of life necessary to functioning well in a situation where nothing is guaranteed to you as a religious organization. And I think that a lot of times Lutherans, even though, you know, obviously they're supported by free giving and they're supported by the American legal structure surrounding churches, have not fully imbibed the necessity of, for instance, initiative and I would say, for lack of a better word, friendliness, that whether you want to be or not is actually required. You, you can't assume things. It's required 
for promoting the gospel in America. If you want to be unfriendly or miserable or inwardly focused all the time, that's fine, but you have to accept that your numbers are going to be vanishingly small because you will be the preserve of people with pre-existent ethnic commitments to this group. So kindness, that, that's hospitality and initiative, that's zeal. And these are both things that are essential to, as you talk about, a, a free church idea, uh, living in a world where no one's coming to help except except the angels and, and the risen Lord. And, <laughs> yeah, and which is, all, yeah, it's all you need, but yeah. Who inhabits right. you, right? Um, right. But there's a little bit more wild and, and adventure to this entire thing uh, in terms of you can't put your trust in princes and the church bodies the fellowships, the synods, the free conferences. There's about a lot of different experiments on like how did the state church try to exist as a free church in the last couple hundred years. Um, all of them have more or less turned into princes. And uh, yeah, what, is it, right. what does it mean? We, we really do have to still continue to be students of the Bible when it comes to ecclesiology and not assume that everything was settled by the divine right of kings, um, even though uh, you know I, I advocate that a, a good king is, is better than a bad oligarchy um if you if you take it there so um i had one other thing and it was really awesome and the best idea i ever had after the best idea i ever had because that was earlier this morning so you'll just have to wait till next time you're listening to a brief history of power you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here the hebron collegium is a gap year bible school for men in rockford illinois semi-monastic boot camp for christian living cowards and slackers need not apply hebroncollegium.com what do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.
www.northidaho.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful inland Northwest.